Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. By now, you know that we're both on vacation. And so whether you're taking us on vacation with you or... You're bringing our vacation with you to work or on your drive home. We appreciate that. Uh, Not very common that uh, vacations overlap for Jim and me, but they do this time. And so we wanted to give you uh, some interesting things to listen to. On Monday, of course, we talked about Jim's forthcoming book, Gathering Five Storms. Uh, Yesterday, we talked about one year since the debacle in Afghanistan. And then the rest of the week, we'll uh, be talking about your questions and our answers to those. Some probing, some fun, some just really, really interesting. We have an awesome audience. So we're grateful for that. And it's a format we'll probably return to at some point when uh, we're either uh, taking a holiday or just taking a day off or something like that. But uh, Jim, today we're going to be looking at where we think things stand with the midterms. Now, obviously, since we're on vacation, we're recording this uh, shortly after the big primaries on uh, August 2nd. So uh, whatever happened on August 9th, uh, I think it's a fairly limited primary schedule. Uh, we're not able to factor that in, but hopefully we will soon after we return. So we're going to break this into three sections. What we expect uh, for the fight for control of the U.S. Senate, uh, the fight for control of the House, and then some of the key governorships uh, around the country. So, Jim, it's a 50-50 Senate right now, which is why Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have so much power when it comes to the filibuster, or in Manchin's case right now, massive spending legislation. Uh, the Republicans, because they did fairly well in 2016, are defending a lot of seats. Uh, there are a few uh, low-hanging seats of the Democrats that Republicans could try to pick up in order to try and win back the majority. That is proving harder than expected. In terms of seats Republicans have to defend that are tough, Pennsylvania, as we've talked about a lot, looking very, very difficult right now uh, with Dr. Oz as the GOP nominee against Fetterman, who can't get out on the campaign trail, but he's still winning by double figures. Uh, Wisconsin is going to be nip and tuck. Ron Johnson um, is deeply unpopular there. Um, It looks like uh, the Democrats are going to be nominating Mandela Barnes because his competition is now gone in the primary and he is pretty much a radical on the other side. So that might be uh, Ron Johnson's best chance to, to to contrast that race. And then what I think is going to be a nip and tuck race and absolutely should not be, Jim, is Ohio. Uh, then we've got a couple of uh, Republican-held seats that I think are also going to be tight but aren't getting a ton of attention. One is the open seat in North Carolina. And then uh, our old friend Evan McMullen, the independent who is now you know uh, joining forces with the Democrats, is keeping things pretty close right now, at least, against Mike Lee. Uh, Republicans with pickup chances in Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Uh, and the question is whether we've got a good shot at getting those. So a lot of build up there. Uh, where do you think things stand right now? Uh, I think these Senate races, as we get closer to Election Day, will be where most of the attention is. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about the House and governor's races in a bit. But I think everybody, you know, the likelihood of Republicans winning the House has been pretty good all year long. And I think as we get closer... Um, we'll have a better sense of how big that GOP gain is going to be. So now the question is really, they're going to get the House. The question is, how big is that going to be? The governor's races, they should get more attention, but, you know, they're outside of the beltway and it just isn't, doesn't, you know, uh, doesn't seem to get the attraction of the national media. By comparison, Greg, this is a really unusual Senate cycle because I think heading into it, people looked at the map and said, oh, man, Republicans have got a lot of friendly territory they should be cleaning up here. And I don't think they're in the position to do so. 
Uh, I don't think I'd say I'm going to say, oh, Republicans won't win the majority. I think probably right now, I guess, something in the neighborhood of 51-49. But I think they're probably going to leave some winnable seats on the table. Uh, I hate to sound like a broken record on Mehmet Oz, but I'll just say, like, again, this is a Toomey seat that he's held for 12 years. Um, this is a state that were, uh, Donald Trump won in 2016 narrowly. He lost it in 2020 pretty narrowly. You'd like to think a Republican would be in the ballpark for a uh, at least make this a competitive race against Fetterman, who, I remind, I remind you, had a stroke in mid-May and has barely made any appearances, and Oz seems to be losing ground. Uh, the Republicans I talked to are a little more confident about J.D. Vance out in Ohio. I think you can say, looking at Trump's victories, victory margin in 2016 and 2020, Ohio is a redder state. Um, I don't think it's a slam dunk, and I think you may have I've heard a, couple, a little bit of grumbling that Vance is not out doing all the state fairs and, and you know, not out hustling uh, Tim Ryan. But in the end, this is a pretty uh, Republican year. Um, and it's just, you know, Ryan, you know, my understanding is that Ryan is just dominating the airwaves and people haven't seen J.D. Vance on the airwaves. Once J.D. Vance starts running the ads, I expect he'll start building up on that. That one will look at safe. Uh, yeah, Ron Johnson looks, you know, like toast out in, West, in Wisconsin. The problem is that he looked like toast Yes. Six years ago. Yes. And he looked like toast six years before that. So this seems like a guy who is uh, figured out a way to eke out a victory, even when nobody thinks he has a chance. If I remember correctly, I want to say in 2016, uh, some liberal magazine ran a cover piece entitled Russ Feingold Returns to Washington because Russ Feingold was a Democratic nominee who Ron Johnson had beaten six years earlier. Well, Johnson beat him again. <laughs> so the lesson is, don't put a guy on your cover until you actually get all the votes counted. Um, it's an interesting point that we have heard almost nothing about North Carolina, and it's had some very close races over the years. Um, Rubio looks like a slam dunk in Florida. There's some states that are usually very competitive. Don't look all that uh, risky for, uh, for the Republicans this time around. You know, I, again, I think Republicans will be okay. I, I'm not feeling great about Arizona. I think right now, Georgia's probably a jump ball. Uh, I don't think anybody, I'm, I'm speaking out of school when I say Herschel Walker has been something of a um, underwhelming candidate. He, you know, it's nothing wrong with him not knowing everything about politics when he jumps into the race, but he really hasn't. Uh, seem to you know pick up speed here. I do think seeing like MSNBC commentators uh, call him the other N word and other racially charged dismissiveness. I think that creates a little bit of a rally around the flag effect for Republicans. I think they got a sense of, even if they might have been skeptical on Herschel Walker, there's a how dare you talk to him, talk about him that way. And I also wonder if African Americans kind of feel like they don't necessarily respond well to the Democratic presumptuous there. So add it all up, I think Republicans get a majority. I don't think they get a big majority. And I think they're probably kicking themselves over some races like Arizona or Georgia. Uh, but also keep your eye on states like Colorado, uh, Washington, Republicans think Patty Murray could be vulnerable. Now, Patty Murray usually wins by a huge margin. But you add it all up between the, the state of the economy, Biden's approval rating, all that kind of stuff. It's probably just going to be too much of an undertow for Democrats to overcome. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I'm less optimistic, but I'm usually more pessimistic about <laughs> trying to keep expectations low, I guess. Um, but um, I, I feel like the the seats that are open are not 
being uh, taken advantage of here. Uh, Georgia, for the reasons we mentioned, hopefully uh, you're right about the Republicans coming home and rallying around Herschel Walker. Uh, he's not uh, as well versed on the issues as he should be, but he's certainly going to vote the right way. And Raphael Warnock is not a candidate that, that fits Georgia voting at all. Arizona, uh, I feel, is part of the Peter Thiel uh, trio here. Uh, he bankrolled Blake Masters, he bankrolled Dr. Oz, and he bankrolled J.D. Vance. I I really feel like two out of three of those are not going to go our way. I think Pennsylvania especially. Arizona is going to be close, but I'm not sure he was the strongest candidate for that electorate. And J.D. Vance, uh, like you said, if he gets his ads up, things can change. He had a terrible fundraising quarter, though. And so unless he gets a lot of help from the NRSC and some other places, uh, he might have a hard time uh, fighting back against that. Tim Ryan is basically trying to run as a Fox News Republican. And I think by now he's been around long enough that Ohio voters are not going to fall for that. But um, again, that race closer than it needs to be. I really, really hope, Jim, that Evan McMullen does not, <laughs> does not pull this off in Utah. That would be the ultimate insult. That guy doesn't belong anywhere near any seat of honor. Uh, and then in terms of uh, Colorado and Washington, I would love to see Republicans make a play there. Um, I know Republicans believe they nominated their two strongest candidates there. I believe Patty Murray was mid-50s in the jungle primary, and she was the only Democrat. So some work to be done there for Republicans, to be sure. But hopefully uh, the Democrats at least have to devote a tremendous amount of resources there if they want to hang on to that seat. So if I had to guess, I'd say uh, Democrats hang on to the majority. Unfortunately, kind of a reversal of 2018, where it was a Democratic year, but Republicans made gains in the Senate. Um, I just hope that it's, you know, still even Stephen, if Republicans can't win the majority, uh, or at least close enough where uh, Manchin and Cinema can at least stop really horrible things from happening. All right, on to our second uh, martini here, and that's the House. And obviously, we can't go through 435 uh, different races here, Jim. But, uh, you know, years ending in two. Oh, oh wait, we not? <laughs> Fine. Oh, you did all that prep for nothing? I'm Hang sorry. On, <laughs> Jim's going to put a substack no, out, breaking down every single House race. No, uh, no but uh, years ending in two are always very interesting because that means we've done redistricting. And in some states where Democrats control everything, like Illinois and California, um, you know, they're going to have more Democratic seats. And then you have Republicans, especially in Florida, but some other states around the country as well, um, where things are going to look a lot more red. Uh, so far, not impressed with independent uh, district drawing commissions. They never seem to be all that independent, Jim. I was watching the Michigan primary last week and looking at the new boundaries, and I was, you know, wondering how much they'd had to drink before they'd uh, drawn some of these lines. It's just not making a lot of sense from my perspective. So you got to wonder in some of these places how that's going to break down. It'll be uh, perhaps you know a few seats one way or the other. But usually a midterm goes against the president's party. And this year, Biden's uh, numbers are absolutely in the dumper. You've got a lot of people on the left saying, oh, now, but look at all that he's getting done here. Mansions on board and we got the chips bill and we got the highway bill and we got the COVID relief. And a lot of people I know who aren't diehard conservatives are saying, yeah, I know. That's why we want to vote for Republicans <laughs> on top of all the cultural stuff and uh, the schools and, and, and everything else. Uh, I think people are pining for a change and we don't need a lot of seats for the Republicans to, to take back the majority. And hopefully they get some with a lot of votes to spare. Yeah. So this one, I, before we started taping, I, I didn't look at all 435 races, but I did look at 
um, the arguments about redistricting. And listeners probably remember at the beginning of the cycle, they're like, oh, no, Republicans are going to abuse the redistricting process. Did you know there's such a thing as gerrymandering? Yes, yes, it's been around for a very long time, <laughs> been used by both parties. But now it's bad because Republicans are using it. And then the great irony is that particularly in states like New York, uh, California, the Democrat-controlled states figured out ways to maximize their advantage and squeeze out, put Republicans into the same district so they run against each other. Um, they figured out how to maximize their advantages. So all of these folks who had spent the early part of this cycle saying that this was the death of democracy and Republicans were like, ah, actually, no, it turned out okay. It's fine. You know? <laughs> uh, redistricting probably didn't turn into a big advantage for Republicans. It's probably a wash. You can make arguments for certain movements in places like Texas and things like that. But really, um, I don't think that's going to be the big driving factor here. I think what's, what actually is going to be the unusual big driving factor here is that right now there are 211 rep, uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives, 220 Democrats and four uh, vacancies, and a couple of those vacancies are usually Republican-leaning. So when you look at this, and if I'm, not, if I'm projecting a Republican win in the 20 to 30 seat range, uh, instead of, you know, you're like, oh, that, that seems kind of disappointing. Well, the reason you're not going to see a 40-seat giant sweep like you might have used to be seeing in 1994 or 2010 is that Republicans already have most of the low-hanging fruit. Biden really didn't have coattails. So you didn't have any of those fluky, how did Democrats win that one? Um, Joe Cunningham down in South Carolina, uh, backward, you know, down near where my parents live is a good example of this. There was a Democrat who was representing Oklahoma City uh, a couple cycles ago. You know, usually when a president wins, they have these big sweeping, uh, uh, you know, coattails and people come out to support them and they vote candidates down ticket. And then the president's supporters don't bother to turn out in the midterm election. Oh, by the way, this has pretty much happened every year since 2006. 2006, 2010, 2014, 2018, they've all been terrible for the president's party. And usually it's because the president's victory carried along a bunch of guys who were really not all that that good candidates, but who kind of lucked out in winning districts that they usually have no business winning. Well, I don't think we're necessarily going to have that this year because Biden didn't really have that effect. So Republicans can't look at um, traditionally conservative parts of the country and see, aha, that's one we're going to win under normal circumstances. But the irony, the good news is that at least, you know, as of maybe a month ago, this was just about the best case uh, scenario for Republican challengers. Economy, people are really upset about. Biden's approval rating is in the toilet. Um, now, the Roe v. Wade decision probably is going to energize the Democratic grassroots a bit more. You're probably going to see, um, you know, that's, that's going to help them. I think, that, you know, Democrats now do feel like the stakes are higher. They're probably a little less depressed because, as, at least as of this recording, it looks like they'll get some version of build back better now that it now that joe manchin likes the new title inflation reduction act it's okay now <laughs> um so i've looked around by the way there's rarely any polling in a uh it's, it's tougher to poll house races and if they do you're generally getting your polls of of a state like vermont uh or or the dakotas or something something where the the house district is the state montana although i guess montana gained a congressional district this, this cycle uh, because it's much you have otherwise you have to sort out by area codes so it's much tougher to find uh, house polling republicans generally have done really well in what they call the generic ballot where they basically say who are you voting for in the house the republican candidate or the democratic candidate i'm always think we should and, and that has shifted back towards the democrats a bit 
Actually, a, a, a noticeable amount in the past month. Usually Democrats are well ahead on this. So earlier this cycle, when Republicans were actually ahead by a few points, it was like, whoa, this this is like an apocalyptic uh, projection for Democrats. It is now having Democrat. Most of the pollsters have Democrats back ahead by one or two points. That still points to Republican gains. Um, and the other thing I kind of wonder about is if, if, if the ballot said generic Republican versus generic Democrat, people would say, OK, well, I'll vote for Tim Pawlenty. <laughs> because Tim Pawlenty is the world's most generic Republican. I love Governor Tim Pawlenty. I wish he was still the governor of, of Minnesota. They'd be in better shape. So, um, But yeah, so I do wonder the value of that because people might be feeling that way. And then they find out that the candidate in their House district is some moron who got caught, you know, stopping his secretary or something like that. And they're like, well, okay, I don't like that guy, so I'm not going to vote for him. So I don't know how that's necessarily going to shake out that way. I The other thing about the redistricting that I think is worth noticing, he's like, oh, my goodness, why did this not turn out to be this giant advantage for Republicans that, that so many liberals and progressives thought it was going to be? Well, in the states where Republicans controlled redistricting, generally speaking, you can probably find exceptions here and there, but generally speaking, they did not attempt to maximize their advantage and to put the most seats in play. In fact, they did the opposite strategy. They were small C conservative. And in fact, for the Republican seats they had, they made them as safe as possible. So I think what's interesting is like, yeah, Republicans did sacrifice a higher ceiling on how many House seats they could win in a good cycle. But the reverse effect of that is that they raised the floor that Republicans will have in a really bad cycle for them. And as I mentioned, every four or so years or so, we've seen this pendulum effect where, you know, American people vote for a party, give them big majorities in the House, and then about a year or two later, a couple of years later, oh, it's terrible. Wait, why don't we elect these guys? And they reverse back the other direction. I think what we may see in this is probably a Republican majority of, uh, let's say, 230 seats. You know, something that's, you know, solid, but not necessarily overwhelming. Uh, if Kevin McCarthy ends up becoming the next speaker, he'll have a lot of headaches of keeping his caucus together and things like that. But I think what's interesting is that in the next really bad cycle for the GOP, and they're going to have one sooner or later, I hope it doesn't happen anytime soon, but chances are sometime in the next decade, the public's going to be angry at Republicans and they'll vote for a whole bunch of Democrats. And that House minority may not be all that small. I don't know if you know where they are right now with about 211 seats is the, is the floor for the rest of the decade. But I'd be surprised if you saw it go down because of the way they've insured so many of these members and the way they've made so many of these districts, not just R plus two, R plus four, R plus six, but a lot of districts that are R plus 10, R plus 12, R plus you know, 15, 18, 20, where it's really tough to imagine a scenario where a Democrat wins them. So that is my forecast, a moderate House majority, which a lot of people might be grumbling about. But the offsetting fact is this may be a durable House majority cycle after cycle. I think that number is pretty much right on with with what I'm thinking. I hadn't gone down to a specific number, but I think roughly 20 seats, maybe slightly less than that, uh, is is probably a good expectation. Uh, One thing that hopefully uh, Republican legislature shored up is, remember, Jim, we had an amazing number of very close House races that all ended up in the Republican column uh, in 2020. Mm. Uh, One of the reasons that Biden didn't have coattails. And so hopefully those aren't going to be quite as much of nail biters, because if they are, they obviously have the chance of of going the other way. Although I can't think that the environment is any better for Democrats this year than it was uh, for 2020. But uh, but we will see. CPAC Chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. 
On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, on to our final martini here for our midterm special, and those are the governor's races. Uh, Obviously, you know, there's kind of a national feeling for the mood in this midterm election, but uh, dynamics change from state to state. In addition to the Senate races, uh, some of these governor's races will be watched closely as well because some of these people will be running for national office uh, quite soon, most likely, and including Florida, where we have not had the Democratic primary yet, but whether it's Charlie Crist, who it probably will be, or Nikki Freed. I think Ron DeSantis is a strong uh, favorite there. Brian Kemp seems to have it. It's not as big of a lead as we'd probably like, but it's a, at least a solid, consistent lead over Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Ditto for Greg Abbott over Beto in, in Texas at the moment. I feel like Republicans may have overshot the electorate in Arizona uh, with Kerry Lake. We'll see about that. Uh, Nevada, I think that'll be a tight one. Uh, Biden's numbers are just horrendous there. Uh, Michigan, uh, half the Republicans couldn't even figure out how to get on the ballot. And so uh, Whitmer seems to have the advantage right now. And uh, one race and and primary that's happened while we're on vacation here is Wisconsin. So I think that's going to be a significant one as well. So, uh, uh, Jim, I'm I'm sure I missed something there, but I think those are the ones we're going to be watching the closest. No, I I think you put it pretty well. And I think uh, at the beginning of the cycle, my distinguished colleague, Dan McLaughlin, wrote a piece about how 2022 was really put up or shut up time for a bunch of political figures. And high atop that list was Stacey Abrams. And if Stacey Abrams does not become elected uh, governor of Georgia, and right now it's not looking great for her, then people will look at her and say, okay, well, she ran and came close in 2018. Everybody, she was kind of this uh, widely hyped figure. And then she ran, she insisted she was, she actually had won. She did a lot of, you know, Kemp cheated and the vote was suppressed and I'm the real governor, blah, blah, blah. And then you come back four years later and it's, you know, right now, it looks like she will do worse. And I think at that point, her she will have entered her 15th minute of fame. Maybe she can continue going cameos and Star Trek series and things like that. But uh, I think there'll be a lot of conservatives who'll be perfectly happy to see Stacey Abrams ride off into the sunset and not darken their door anymore. Just south of that, uh, Ron DeSantis is likely to win, likely to win by a pretty solid margin. And as we're likely to talk about uh, in our discussions of our Q&A, you know, the margin of victory for Ron DeSantis wins. If he wins by 1% the way he did last time by about one, you know, Rick Scott won by only, you know, 1% in two extremely hard fought, extremely expensive, expensive races down in Florida. Uh, I think people get a little underwhelmed. I think, you know, part of the selling point for Ron DeSantis is that he's taken Florida from a state that was kind of Republican, leaning Republican, and turned it deep red. Um, I think he wants to win by a margin that runs up the score. And I think he wants uh, Rubio to win. And I think he wants Republicans to win any competitive House races. And he, he wants to have down ticket coattails and be able to say, see, I am the next, you know, the next new thing in there. Uh, keeping an eye on Greg Abbott, I would like to see Beto O'Rourke also put in the... Uh, See ya, wouldn't want to be a pile and ride off into the sunset and not have to ever hear his name again. There's been wildly disproportionate hype performance ratio, but we should point out that the race is, you know, Greg Abbott is up usually by the mid to upper single digits percentage points. It's not overwhelming. That's better than Democrats usually do. And Beta O'Rourke 
you know, lost to Ted Cruz by just three percentage points back in 2018, a good year for Democrats. So, you know, is it possible Beto O'Rourke could win the governor's race? Stranger things have happened, but I don't think it's very likely. Um, and I think that, you know, after losing in 2018, flaming out as a presidential candidate in 2020 and not getting elected in 2022, I think even Texas Democrats might be getting tired of uh, Beto O'Rourke. There are some Republican candidates who are likely to overperform. Um, it's going to be a good year for uh, uh, for for Republicans. You know, inflation, high gas prices, high food prices, frustration about the border. The general sense that Biden is a tired old man who simply isn't up to the challenges that are facing the country, things like that. I think a good and interesting indicate was indicator of this was Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, who in the Iowa poll, a pretty darn reliable one, uh, the middle of summer, had her up by 17 points. And people used to think of Iowa as being a fairly blue state, Tom Harkin, all those years ago. Uh, Iowa is looking very red these days, which is also good for a couple of down ticket races there. And I think is an indicator that in those populist corners, um, you know, if you're a Democrat, you should be very nervous right now. And I think that would apply to states like Minnesota and Wisconsin. In uh, Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer's is polling right around 50% in the head-to-head matchups against not terribly well-known uh, Republican challengers. Now that Dixon is the nominee, I think you're going to see, um, you know, Republicans eventually unify if for no other reason than she's not Gretchen Whitmer and uh, do something there. I don't think Mastriano is going to win in Pennsylvania. I think that's a bridge too far. But, you know... This is why if you're Democrats, you shouldn't be playing with fire like this, because if people if, if between now and November, people just get fed up with the Democrats. And I think we're going to get at least two or three more bad inflation reports between now and then because they come out once a month. And we're going to get at one more GDP report, this one for the third quarter, which could indicate a third straight quarter of GDP shrinkage, at which point it would seem even more ridiculous to claim we're not in a recession. And that's the, that's the sort of environment where Democrats lose all over the map. And you could end up losing a Senate race, a governor's race in Pennsylvania or a governor's race in Arizona or races like that. So um, I think we could see some surprises there. But I think what I'm most excited about is seeing the likes of uh, Stacey Abrams and, and uh, Beto O'Rourke finally on the exit and disappearing from the news cycle. Oh. You know, they're going to turn up on MSNBC or CNN, but uh, just uh, just being done with them on, on the ballot would be a phenomenal thing. Neither one of them are uh, as serious about actual governing as they are about being a Democratic celebrity. So uh, they need to be shown the door, and hopefully the, the voters in Georgia and Texas, respectively, will do that. So, Jim, uh, a lot to go over here, and we didn't have to mention the Missouri race being tight. So that was good. We're always grateful for little things. So uh, have a good rest of your vacation, and we'll do the Q&As tomorrow officially. All right. Looking forward to it, Greg, because it didn't happen yet. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great day and join us again tomorrow for the next 3 Martini Lunch. 
This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. This sounds like Belt and Road, and it sounds like the United States at the local level is sort of inviting this granular kind of Belt and Road that's it's off the uh, radar um, of the federal government, off the radar of the media. How does this compare with what China has done in other countries when it comes to Belt and Road? I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.